Welcome to the latest episode of our Downtown Den podcast, and this is part of our Leaders series. I'm delighted to be joined by Dave Brewers, who's the Chief Executive of Hope Street Hotel, also Joint Managing Directors of Director of Carpenters Investment Group. And Dave and I have known each other for far too many years, so I'm delighted that he's agreed to do a very rare interview because this man is one of the most fascinating characters and personalities in Liverpool and owns, I have to say, the very best, most spectacular hotel, not just in Liverpool, but I would say in the country. I love Hope Street Hotel, Dave. So thanks for coming into the oh, downtown. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's, um, that's a wonderful introduction. <laughs> I have to say, listen, big personality, done lots of stuff in and around Liverpool and beyond, uh, but I just wanted to get a sense of how it all started for Dave Brewer. Where was the initial sort of uh, shoots of the career? Um, well, my, my Liverpool career started in 1981 when I'd done, engineer, I'd done science to A-level, looking to go to a university, went to Manchester, went to Liverpool. I was brought up in... Um, Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire. So I'd been brought up in the miners' strike in the Thatcher years. And my politics were very much driven by that. Um, I traipsed around universities. I've got a friend who was doing a cool, what I thought was a cool degree in film studies. So I picked universities that have got cool film studies courses. Somewhat naively thinking, as an engineer, I'll be able to do a bit of film studies. That sounds great. Um, went to... Three universities down south, went to Manchester, came to Liverpool. And Liverpool was the only place I visited that felt like home. People were friendly, they looked you in the eye, they smiled. And it was a bit like being at home in Thorn, South Yorkshire, with my mum and my dad. And people spoke to you and they were friendly. And they gave you advice and said, you want to go that way, you want to go this way. And, it, and I, cycling here this morning, I, had this, that, I was trying to think what, what you would ask me. And I was thinking about my first... Day I came to Liverpool and Probe Records was really cool at the time. It's 1981. Oh, what a great show. And there was, yeah, and, and it was a cool city and the people were really nice. So I, I came here to do a, an engineering degree. Picking Liverpool over Manchester, which I have done ever since. Um, being from Yorkshire, both were sort of the enemy, to be honest. <laughs> um, did my degree, decided I didn't want to go into what I thought was the nasty world of the private sector. So I went off to London, did a, a teaching course. I'd always thought I didn't want to be a teacher. Ended up being a teacher in what the Daily Mail called Britain's Worst School, which was extremely unhelpful and, as the Daily Mail always is, not very positive about anything of any value. Um, taught there for five years. I think it taught me a lot. Um, it, was a, it was a tough school. I think every kid I taught was great. There was some. Where was that day? It was in Hackney. Okay. Um, and there, I learned many, many things there. Uh, many things about aspiration of kids. I famously had big arguments with careers teacher who told two of my favourite students, Mavis and Darren, black girl, white lad, who both were wanted to be doctors and were told by the careers advisor perhaps they should consider being nurses. And I went berserk and I was a bit, I just, I, I can, I can offend people quite quickly. And I often, often say things I shouldn't. And it became quite a famous row in, in the staff room that I'd had saying, you cannot, you cannot restrict people's ambition. Um, and you can't do it to any kid, but particularly not two kids 
it was super bright. So I love teaching. There's, um, in my world, there's only two jobs that are important really, which are health and education. Everything else is, I sort of think what we do now, Frank, as group chairman or chief executive is sort of the fluff that, that provides all of that. We, and so I, so I taught for a bit. My, I took a decision to come back to Liverpool. Amy, my now wife, was doing postgraduate work here. Um, and I had the decision to take to come back to Liverpool, which I took very happily. It's such a great city. London is a very tough and tiring city to work in. Um, as a teacher, as a young teacher, it's great. When you're less than 30, you've got tons of energy and you can do anything and you can fight the world. I think bringing up kids in London is much more difficult. Um, not that we're thinking of kids at that point. but um, So I moved back to Liverpool, taught in Birkenhead in what was supposed to be a tough school, and it was a bit like a grammar school. <laughs> Everyone knew why they had a bag, what, what to put in a bag. They knew what homework was. They may not have done it, but they, they understood <laughs> all of those very basic principles of education. Um, so I taught over there for a bit, loved it. And then um, Amy was living in a flat in Rodney Street, and my house, which we now live in on Gambia Terrace on Hope Street, overlooking the cathedral, came on the market. And I said I'd take a year of teaching to do up a house. It took at least six years. Amy would probably say it took about 20 years and it would still say it's not finished. Um, and I drifted into the world of building and worked on, just to work on my house, it's grade two style list. So it was difficult. But having done an engineering degree, the engineering was 150 years old. So nothing was that hard. Cast iron was difficult. We did have some foundries in Liverpool at the time. Lead work was difficult. So I learned lots of things about building and drifted into building. Um, worked initially for friends, then an architect friend of mine, um, Dylan Jones, introduced me to a Billy Olmark, who was a developer, sort of friend of Hugh Frost at the time, just the very early days of Beetham. Who wanted a house on Sefton Park doing it? So I had my usual say, that'd be great, I'll do that. Realised how difficult it was. Realised how ruthless the world of development and construction is. Um, very quickly, it took about 18 months to two years to do. And I think I earned a very small salary out of it. And I ended up with a little tiny cement mixer and some circular saws and bits and bobs. So I drifted into building. And then subsequently, Dylan said, this building on Hope Street is coming available. You should have a look at it. You could do this. And at the time, I thought I'd build some apartments and maybe put a restaurant underneath in the way that the only way I could think about it. Um, did my Yorkshire calculation that said a one-bedroom flat is about £100 a week. A similar size, which would be a suite in a hotel, is about £100 a night. <laughs> Why wouldn't you do that? So that's how it sort of started. And I've, from there, there's been many similar calculations on how to do stuff, the building of it, the running of it. Um, I've been very lucky. I've worked with some great people. Um, Paul from the art school was my first chef, and his, everyone knows his passion for the industry. Um, and like all things that are successful, there has to be a balance between two people's views. And I think Paul and I famously had lots of arguments about how expensive the plates should be. And I famously, at one stage, one of my many rants said, I'm not buying any more teaspoons. And I was absolutely adamant, I'm sick to death of buying teaspoons. I'm not buying any more teaspoons. And somebody quietly took me to one side and said, David, 
you've got a restaurant serving 24-7, you're going to have to buy some teaspoons. <laughs> and I didn't want to buy any teaspoons. So I was sick to death of buying quite expensive teaspoons at the time. And they just all disappeared. And I was like, I'm not buying anymore. You just have to, you just have to count them. Count them every day. And so you start to learn how business works and how you look at EasyJet and they count every packet of crisps on every flight. And you think, oh, yeah, a teaspoon is a lot more expensive than a packet. We need to count them. We need to count our napkins. So you go through all of these things of how to. And I'd, you know, I'd never, I'd never worked in a restaurant. I'd never worked in a hotel. Bizarrely, in 2002, when I went to the bank and said, can you lend me some money? I asked for it. It was £400,000 at the time. And they said, that was the first loan, was £400,000. They said, yes. I remember feeling very worried and concerned that how on earth am I going to pay that? Like, that's a huge amount of money. The actual cost of building it when we got to start building, that was the purchase, was two million quid. And again, the same thing. The bank said it was actually 1.96 they lent me. It cost about 2.1. And it was very, very difficult at the end with the bank saying you spent too much. And you sort of learn as you go along. And I'd never intended to be a teacher. I'd never intended to be a hotelier. I'd never intended to be a developer. They were not things I wanted to do. But I think the, the core of all of it is ambition and desire is what drives you to do stuff. And, and I think going into business has been, as I say, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I left teaching at the time. I lived it. But I was very aware I had 2.2p per pupil per class. So... If someone broke a bureau to test for you, I was over budget. If I photocopied two pieces of paper, I'd over budget. I now find myself saying to people, why have you printed it on that sort of paper? Why have you printed that on that sort of paper? It's way too expensive. So all these things go around and there's, it's a, it's a curious, business is an interesting thing. I think you have to set, you don't, well, I didn't set off to create a valuable business. I think people who do, if you look at Zuckerberg, who, didn't really set out to create one of the biggest businesses in the world. He set out to be somewhat rude and somewhat unpleasant about women in his university. I think, well, it has, it has happened to create an unbelievably successful business. So, and I think a lot of businesses are created by people who just want to do something and they're passionate about it and they do it. I never was passionate about hotels, but once I'd started, as Amy used to say, if you're going to do it, you're going to, it's going to have to be the best, it's going to have to be good, which was quite a challenge because... We didn't have any money and had virtually no experience, but we've finally, I think we've nearly got there. I've got a fantastic team. Um, the business is all about the people in it. Just like when I first walked around the streets of Liverpool, it's about the people that are here and it's about looking at people and smiling. And that's sort of all hospitality is, you know, the cost of food is the cost of food. The cost of drink is the cost of drink. And you have to work within the margins that make a business work. And they're always the same. It's always, it doesn't matter which business you're in. One thing I did learn working with Paul is that I never used to be able to afford to go to a Michelin-style restaurant. I now know that going to a Michelin-style restaurant, you definitely get better value than stopping on the M6 when you're driving up and down because no one's really making any money in those restaurants. <laughs> they don't make any money, but they are fantastic experiences. So it's, you're, you're constantly learning and you should constantly be challenged. And I think... So that's how that's sort of my very broad story. Fascinating. Which is just not a very, yeah, not a very usual one, I think. No, very unusual and, and surprising to me because I'd naturally assumed that you'd always had a passion for hospitality because the hotel is such a fantastic place to, to go. So you walk into that place and you think, 
well, the guy who runs this and owns this must know everything about the sector. So you've, you, you said something really interesting then. I'll Paul ask you, obviously very sort of uh, famous chef here in Liverpool and again, no doubt elsewhere in the UK as well, owns the art school now, as you say. So he's your first chef. But how do you, somebody who has not got experience in that sector, start to develop a team? How do you start to recruit well, people? I've, uh, since I was at school, I've always been a reluctant leader. I've always been told I'm a leader. I've played a lot of sport and I was captain of all sorts of sports teams. And I think my, the, the way I work, which is not one that I recommend anyone follows, is that I sort of do what I want to do in a way that I want to do it and then try and, and hope people follow. And the world of hospitality is very interesting. And Paul and I, you know, we had many rounds. I remember famously going into the kitchen, a similar thing, because we used to have, I don't know what dish it was, and Paul will be horrified that I can't remember. And it had a green swirl of pea something across the plate, which looked beautiful, as it always did. And I went into the kitchen to see one of our chefs having shelled the peas, then blanched the peas, then skinned the peas, and then puree the peas, and then put a swirl across a plate that's sort of so small you can barely taste it. And I was like, really? Can't we just buy that? No one can taste it. And Paul, obviously, with his standards, is very different. Of course we've got to do that. And, and so there's a constant battle of, we can't afford to do that, Paul. No one really wants to pay that much money for something. And I think that's what's fascinating about good food, is when you go somewhere that is exceptional, those taste sensations and those pairings. So we took Paul to Barcelona for his 40th on the proviso that he would take us to a couple of restaurants. And going to, to eat somewhere with someone who knows what they're talking about and says, no, Dave, you don't want to drink that Sauvignon with that. You want to drink that. And I said, no, I don't. I know what I like. I know what I want. No, Dave, you want it. And, and then you do it and go, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're quite right. So, it, that, and I think building the team, they were of four of us at the time, a mixed team of people, and you quickly grow. So we've got 240 staff now. Um, 240. Yeah. So we went we went into COVID with 108, and I was determined that we protected everyone. I famously started going in about two weeks before. Uh, well, I'd just changed banks. We'd, we've had various banks over the years. We moved to Barclays. And in my upbringing, Barclays were the baddies because of um, apartheid. South Africa. And I'd never really wanted to. And I think, you know, 30-odd years on, they'd maybe sort of just about got it. But it was still a niggle for me. I was a little bit uncomfy. And I've got a very good bank manager, Sean, as a bank manager. And about 10 days after, we'd refinanced with him, having done all the development we'd done, finally finished building. About 10 days in, I had to ring him and say, Sean, I've, I've just shut the hotel. And I know we owe you loads of money, but we've had to shut. So I shut about three days before the government said we all had to. And famously, two weeks before that, I said, I'll never shut. We've been open 24-7 every day since we opened. And the early days are arguments about Christmas Day. And I've said, no, we always need to be open. And I never thought we'd shut. And so that was a very tough moment. But, but going back to your question about how do you build a team, I, I don't think I'm the person to answer that. I don't think I, I don't. 240 I, I, people lazy you saying yeah, to me I don't I think, really think I, you should be asking me that yeah and that's in the hotel company which is my little baby <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. bizarrely built my trophy asset before my proper business so Carpenter Investments is five times the size of the hotel and my 
business partners, uh, building and timber merchant Alan Beer, who we yeah, formed yeah. a business with. Yeah. So I think it's funny how you build a team and we've got various teams in, in, in all our businesses. And it's, it's, it's interesting. And it's all about people getting on with each other. When they're happy and they're getting on with each other, they're really productive. When they're not, it's just you spend the whole time dealing with people. And I think creating a good, positive environment is, is difficult. My car chef is, I think, probably our, and no disrespect, probably our best chef in lots of ways because he, he gets on with doing the job and he holds his team together. And it's a tough business. It's under his pause. It's a really tough business. It's a, expectations are high. Um, I think a little bit like the medical world where you have lots of chefs saying, well, I used to work an 80-hour week. I expect you to do it. I think, well, that's not really the answer. It's not the answer in the NHS. It's not the answer in hospitality. And hospitality, it still prevails too much. And, I, and because there's so much passion in, in a creative environment, sometimes you get people who are very happy doing it. But equally, it's not the right. It's, so it's a very difficult balance, that. I think that's a really hard balance. Um, and keeping people productive in a way that customers want to receive is also a difficult balance. And I want to do this. Yeah, well, it doesn't really matter if your customers want this, you may need to adjust. And it's a, it's a tough world, but as I say, it's all just about being nice to people. Just be nice to people. Cover people and being nice, just nice to people. You smile to people and you look and you, you, you listen and you try and give what they want. Sometimes, you know, you know, we have horrible customers. I'm shocked sometimes by people's behavior, but the only way to deal with it is just by being better and being kinder. And, and then they've got nowhere to go. And that, I think, and I hope that's sort of what we continue to do in the hotel. It's about just look after people. Hospitality in itself should be such an easy thing, shouldn't it? It's, it's what, you know, you look at a lot of Middle Eastern cultures that are so hospitable that you, you keep offering, you keep offering, you keep saying, would you like some more? Would you like some more? Can I get you? And I think that's sort of what it is. I, I had a, You've focused a lot on the restaurant side of the hotel and the food side, but the hotel is much more than it that. It is much more than that. And, and I was just going to ask you a couple of things, actually, in terms of, again, the ambience and that environment that you've created, which is special. Um, but also in terms of getting that balance right as well, because I've stayed at some wonderful hotels, mostly in the capital, were, you know, the rooms are great, the service is good, but the food <laughs> is Doesn't pretty woeful. So how do, you, how do you maintain that level at every single aspect of what you offer? I think um, it's a very good point. One of the things, the reason I talk about the restaurant is because that's the bit that most people see the most. So you, you may have a fantastic dinner, you may have a great celebratory event there. You'd often leave having had breakfast. So it's, it's often your first and last experience because you sort of arrive at your room and you chuck your bag in, then you go and have a drink or you go and have some food or you go out. So the restaurant's very important. And we took a, I think what was, well, I still think is the right decision. Um, I was very keen not to have a hotel restaurant because hotel restaurants don't work. It doesn't matter if you sit Gordon Ramsay's name on it or if you sit, and, and many hotels try this because most places you go to, the restaurant in a hotel, as you say, lets the place down. So I was very keen, and again, I knew nothing about what I was doing, but I wanted two separate brands. I wanted the hotel not to be the same brand as the restaurant. So we have the London Carriage Works, we have the Hotel. In the early days, 
There are many people in the restaurant who said, oh, I didn't know there's a hotel. Now, clearly, the bulk of our business is hotel rooms. Making a restaurant um, profitable is very, very difficult. And making rooms profitable is also very difficult, but a bit simpler. And I think that delivering a good hotel room and a good hotel ambience is, I learned, again, I learned something in Nottingham when I was first looking at what a hotel was. And we'd stayed in a hotel, the Lace Market Hotel, which is quite a similar sort of boutique hotel to how we started. And we'd arrived and we were soaking wet, it was pouring with rain. And the greeting we got was fantastic. You know, we must have had a long journey, but I've come from Liverpool. And would you like a drink sent to your room? Yes, I'd love a gin and tonic. Oh, we send doubles, that okay? Oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. And I felt really well looked after. We got to our room, settled in, stayed in the hotel. I measured everything, the skirting boards, the beds, and sort of thing. This is what this is what I need to do. Go and pay the bill, and you realise, oh, that was just a really straightforward upsell. I didn't know what an upsell was in those days, but that's one of the things. You, and I felt fantastic, but someone had actually just put, I don't know what it was at the time, probably 30 quid on my bill. <laughs> Great, thanks for that. I then went back to chat to the owners and their um, general manager, and the general manager said something really important to me. He said, Dave, you don't really understand hotels, do you? I said, well... I sort of think I do. And so we're just at the point of nearly building. He said, what you don't understand is half your customers don't want to be there. What do you mean they don't want to be there? Well, they're there on work, aren't they? The midweek, they're there on work. They'd rather be at home. They'd rather sit there with their family or be at home doing whatever they're doing rather than be here with work. They may have to run in, get changed, go out to meet someone, run back in. In the morning, they have to get up, have a shower, get straight out. So they need three things. They need their bathroom to be at least as good preferably better, so a decent shower, a decent bath. Baths were important in those days. They're not so important now. They were a really comfortable bed. And in those days, they wanted somewhere comfortable to work. Nowadays, you tend to work more sitting on your laptop, on your, on your, on your chair, on your bed. But in those days, business wanted a, a decent desk. And he said, you think a hotel is? I said, well, I, I know what a hotel is. And he said, yeah, you think it's sitting in the Alps going, what a fantastic view, or sitting in the Mediterranean going, isn't this great? He said, that's half your customers are not interested. And so you, you start point. to, and, I, and you yeah. don't think about these things yeah. until someone, you know, points yeah. out the blindingly obvious. Well, of course they don't. So getting it right in the rooms, every, in fact, still every room that we have is um, different. There are a couple of rooms that are similar, but they're, there's nothing, there's no two identical rooms, whereas most chain hotels there are. I used to argue about the size of a boutique hotel. And and again, looking at some of the best hotels in London, you realize that actually you don't realize there's 150 rooms behind this absolutely immaculate reception and restaurant and bar. And and that's how they that's how they afford the level of service they offer. Um so I think you have to always look at delivering what you think would be nice. What, what do you think would be nice when you get there? Yeah. And do you get involved in the creativity around how the rooms look and how yeah, they're you do? Yeah, because that is a skill in itself. And I wonder where you get that talent from. Well, I wouldn't exactly call it a talent. I'd call it a sort of a more of a Yorkshire sort of, well, we can't afford that. We'll <laughs> we can't afford that. You're yeah, I do selling want to, this. Yeah, people do. are going to think, oh, this is going to be I one think, of the I most stars <laughs> places I've ever visited. Well, it is quite, it is sort of that Scandi. It's quite minimalistic. It is a little bit. So that but comes it, from two things. But it looks great, yeah? Yeah, two, you've, you've got to do two things. You've got to make it feel 
really nice. So you know, you've got fantastic floorboards in here, which look like they're maple. I think, okay, that's cool. Your skirting board is fairly pointless, but nobody looks at it. So, but it's not offensive. So you mustn't put anything in that's offensive. And where you've got something that's cool, whether it's your steel pillars outside, we've got cast iron pillars in the in the first phase of the building. You you have to show off those really cool bits of building that you've got. And everything else you do, so we put beautiful oak floors in. I learned from Basher, who was the architect I did the first one with, who was a close family friend, um, that we put walnut and oak, the two woods that go together. Well, I had no idea that you could match. I just thought, well, that's a brownish wood and that's an orangey wood and that's a yellow wood. And no, no, no. Oak goes with walnut and cherry goes with maple um, or beech, which our floors were in the bulk of the room. So you sort of slowly start to learn these things from people who know what they're talking about. And then you sort of stick to the rules. So uh, unfortunately, we've now just ended up pretty oaky. So we, I challenged my building company to build School Lane Hotel in, in 80 days um, for Eurovision. And I spoke to John, who's a construction director. said, John, can you build a hotel in 80 days? He said, yeah, of course you can. And then he stepped back and said, you mean it, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. <laughs> and so we set off and we built a hotel. It probably took 100 days. But we did build a hotel and we did open for Ukraine. I think having that deadline was very important. Um, you know, one of the floors wasn't quite complete, but we'd got 40, 44 rooms finished and we opened and ready for you. Now, Eurovision was a fantastic PR event for the city. It wasn't a particularly great commercial event for the hotel sector or the rest. It wasn't what was promised. Um, but all these things are good. They are great things for the city to have. I think what's interesting is when you look at the economic impact of them and who assesses the economic impact, and more importantly, who assesses the legacy. So if we look at the biennial, what is the legacy? Well, I see loads of beautiful things that people do for the biennial, but they're frequently all just thrown away. And I, there's a, the, the Turning the world around is just over here, isn't it, where they've got that yes. like face near more fields, well, not a face, a clock face. And I, I think understanding business is difficult. It's very difficult because it's, a lot of it is quite boring. A lot of it is making sure the numbers work, making sure that you can pay all of your staff and that, it's, that it is delivering what it should deliver. Um, and, and it's very, very easy to say this is what we should do, particularly in an HR world. And, well, what we should do is this. Well, yeah, of course we should do that. Of course it's the working week now. I think, I don't know how long the working week is. It's not 40 hours, which my working week always was. It was, as a teacher, it was much longer. But expectations of the next generations coming through of what they do for a job is, is very different. And COVID's had a huge impact on that. And I think a lot of the, a lot of those, we will feel a lot of the problems generated by the isolation of working at home. There is something to be said that sometimes people are much more productive. I was talking to a, Planning consultant yesterday who works for has worked for us for it must be for at least ten years, and he was saying he gets so much work. He tends to work in the middle of the night, but he's undisturbed. He's at home and he just gets all his work done. I think it's productivity is a difficult thing to assess, um, and where you work is tricky. You know, what, when when are you most productive? So, group chairman. Well, when are you being group chairman? At the moment, you're sitting having a chat to Dave. I'm chief exec. What am I doing when I'm chatting to Frank? Is it a chief exec's job? Does it require a big salary? Well, no, because people would sit in the pub and do this. Mm. But however, we usually do. Well, and, that's what, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think that's what's interesting. Is this, is this part of a well-paid job? And so, I mean, I don't pay myself at the hotel because it's, 
it's just easier not to. And I, I think it's a funny thing how you assess jobs. And, I, and you look at, I used to think the public sector was shockingly poor at employing people and being efficient, getting things done. And now a school friend who's living with the moment has pointed out that large corporations are just as inefficient. And just because they're successful doesn't stop them being grossly inefficient. I had a, I went to have a blood test yesterday at the Royal, the new Royal, which is a coolish building. And seeing the scale of what is achieved, the number of people that are having blood tests per hour is, is absolutely staggering. And the work that is done is staggering. And the, the nurse that took my blood was asked, when, how long are you doing this? Says, this seems to be really tough. Says, yeah, I started at seven. And I'll probably finish at seven. And I'm going to do however many tons and tons of people. I think that side of the NHS is hugely efficient. And yet you can walk around and see other bits and think, oh, this is a catastrophe. And we've got so many problems as a country to deal with. But most of them, whether it's social care or the NHS, they're not difficult problems. You know, the solution should be easy, but they turn into political footballs and therefore nothing happens. Not we, just, we have stupid arguments about right and wrong. And it's, it's a shame, really, because there are so many good people. The thing I learned as a teacher was pretty much everyone's a, a good person. There are some baddies out there and you know, we generally know who they are and we generally stay away from them. But most people are good and they do their job well and they want to do their job well. Um, and and we, we just have to put our arms around people and get that done. And it's a hard thing to do, particularly, you know, the economics of all of it are difficult, running a hotel, running a hospital. Well, there's similarities, running a prison. I look at running a prison and think, well, it'd be cheaper to stay in my hotel. How can it be cheaper to stay in my hotel than put someone into a prison? When the, and Okay, we don't have quite the same security, but... Putting a bar on a window is not difficult. You know, I could keep my customers in the room. I could lock the door and say, you're staying in there. Um, so, yeah, it's a business world's a funny world. It it's is a, a funny, funny world. world. And, you've, you, you know, you, you've spoke about the hospitality sector that you're involved in through, through the hotel, obviously, and you've clearly got passion for that. Tell me a bit about the development company, because I probably don't know as much about carpenters as I do. No, and again, hosting. it's something we sort of keep under the radar. It's, um, it's about 15 years old. So um, I, as I say, I was running a building company, and obviously – I sent loads of stuff back because the timber wasn't straight. It wasn't quite what I wanted. It wasn't good enough. I sent it back. That's not good enough. And Alan Beer, who was um, one of the, the three brothers of Beers at the time working for his dad, who had an awful lot of time working, his dad was very similar to my dad who worked in a bank. Um, and he thought, I'm going to have to come out and see this. He didn't buy that much stuff, but he sends nearly all of it back. <laughs> so he came out to see me. And we discovered we got some mutual friends. I was playing rugby up at Waterloo at the time. Um, and he was brought up over on the Wirral. And we got some mutual friends and became family friends. Our children have grown up together and the two families have grown together. Um, and then probably about 2006-ish, we both thought running a timber business is, well, he thought running a timber business is very difficult. I thought, crikey, this hotel works really hard. This is really hard business. It's got to be an easier answer. And we both put 
I think, £20,000 into, which is a big sum of money for us both at the time, into a development company. Let's run a development company. It'd be great. Well, so we sort of acquired a few bits of land. And I think we ended up with about a million pounds worth of debt on three bits of land, which weren't really worth a million pounds at the time. And then 2007, eight happened. And we were on a family holiday in northern Italy. And we're walking up a mountain thinking, what on earth are we going to do? We know the bank. It was the Bank of Ireland. We had a bank, an awful lot of money that we don't have. We've got some land that's now not really worth anything. And we decided to start building. So we're going to have to build our house. All we can do is build. We can't do anything else. Just, sort of what we've done ever since. We have, um, we started, we built 50 student bedrooms and the Tesco's underneath it. Um, and then we've sort of, we've developed a, a fairly large property portfolio. So as I say, it's, it's five times bigger than beers and hopefully that I'll put together. And we've now got hundred million pounds worth of borrowing. We're comfortably geared. We're sort of sub 50%. So, but what we found certainly over the last couple of years is we're now all the money that we used to recirculate to continue growing has dried up because we have to give the bank 5 million quid that we didn't used to have to give them. And our income's about 14. So all of that and the cost. So you're not left with any, any money to keep developing. And, and so if I, the, so the, the effect of interest rates is huge in terms of slowing the economy down. We're comfy and we've got some fairly ambitious plans to keep going. As I say, we've just, we're in Stockport building, I think it's 203 apartments on a very, very difficult site, which will be great. We've just finished building in Warrington, um, 200 apartments in three blocks. And, and I'm really proud of just keeping, the thing about developers, you have to leave the place better than you find it. My constant argument with planning is, and I sat on a board with Rod Holmes from Grosvenor years ago on some property thing in Liverpool, and I was asked in a much in a, possibly as more public forum than this, you know, what and I and I unfortunately said all everything I thought about the planning department in Liverpool, <laughs> <laughs> and the, what well, at the time what I said, which I, I still hold to, was the general why do, why can you not say. Can you make it bigger? Can you make it better? Why do you have to say, can you make it smaller? Because if I owned Liverpool, the bigger I make it, the more revenue I'm going to get from people living and working here. And if you believe that people are good and people working is good and it pays up, which is why cities are such great places, you should always say, make it bigger, make it better. And so I went on a bit of a rant about that should be what you say, make it bigger, make it better. And I'd, my Amy's from New York and we've got great love of New York. And you think, well, if you look at, we were, we were on a par with New York 100 years ago, slightly over 100 years ago. We're now so far behind, it's embarrassing. We, I traveled around China in 84 before it was open. And standing on the bun looking over at Pudong was like looking over at Birkenhead, standing on this similar waterfront down here. Went back about five years ago, and you now look over the water, and Birkenhead equivalent has turned into a combination of, I don't know, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, and Hong Kong. And they've built this city in the time that I think we've probably built about 30 apartments over there. It's just that, and that's upsetting. I think 
So you have to always make things better. But Rod Holmes at this interview afterwards took me aside and said, and it was some national property press thing, you shouldn't be saying that. I said, what do you mean? He said, you should be, it should be, this is a positive thing. We should be talking positive, positive, positive. I said, Rod, if you told me, I'd have talked positive. But somebody <laughs> asked me the question, what do you think, what does planning do? And I said, well, let's make it bigger and better. And obviously Grosvenor were working very closely with the city. And it was a, it's a, a huge triumph, actually, for the city and for Grosvenor. We, as a city, we were lucky. We had... 2008, we had um, the Capital of Culture. The Liverpool one was finished. Um, and that helped us get over the huge crisis that was 2008 as a city. We, we're very fortunate in that. And I think we've benefited. Unfortunately, every time I've extended the hotel, so we opened 2003, 2004. So I started work straight after 9-11, so the banks pulled out straight away. So my deal, I had a deal with the lace market that stopped. The banks said, pull out the hotel sector, so they did. And I was left with, a, do I carry on on my own? And so I did, and we built it. Then 2007, decided to extend our first <laughs> extension. Then the whole world fell off a cliff again. And then about 2018... I did start a building in our last extension, and then lo and behold, the biggest global <laughs> catastrophe happened, which was COVID. So every time I've done something with the hotel, there's been actually a global catastrophe that has slowed things down. So fortunately, I can't do it anymore, so there probably won't be any more global <laughs> catastrophes. But, um, I was going to say, can you warn us? Yeah, that, well, the hotel is now, that can't get any bigger. We've put six stories on top of two for, of a listed building. Um, We've had huge challenges, and I'm really proud of what we've done at the hotel. And, but even that, I'm not entirely sure the city, certainly the city planning department doesn't really like it. And you think, well, really? Look at the jobs we've created. Look at the investment that's come on the back of it. Look at, the, look at who's been to the city who couldn't. We had um, Condoleezza Rice came in 2006, and it was, a, it was an unbelievable event in the middle of the... the Troubles, continuing troubles in the Middle East. Um, and security was unbelievable. The American security was unbelievable. But Jack Straw, the then Foreign Secretary, couldn't really take it to Blackburn, I think. Not again, I don't want to say anyone lives in Blackburn, but it did. I don't think Jack Straw was quite as comfy um, bringing the most powerful woman in the world to Liverpool. And, you know, famously, the last most powerful woman in the world, um, Elena Roosevelt. Um, Ellen Roosevelt had said that the Adelphi was second only to the Georges Sank in Paris of hotels. And you think, okay, now Liverpool, again, we've got some incredibly powerful woman coming to Liverpool and she's coming to Hope Street. So now I don't think we're quite at the Georges Sank in Paris, but you do want to say, look, this is really great. And we've got the Philharmonic Hall over the road. We've got a cathedral at each end of the street. We've got the Everyman. We've got, we've got on our street what most cities would die for. It must be one of the most beautiful streets in the world. It's, it's an unbelievable street. And, and I think its name in itself is, yeah. you know, is, hope is such a great word. I've got two cathedrals. We've got institutions, as I say, that most cities in the whole city would love to have. And they're just there. Just and, on that and, street. And, we, and you, you sort of take it for granted. I, I live there and cycle up and down there every day and walk up and down there every day. But it's, it is an amazing street. And I think the city is an amazing city. It's architecture, it's history. So the, the, the blind school, um, probably, probably called the School for the Blind, is um, there, was, there were two in the world when it was, when it was moved in 
1851, it moved from London Road when they extended Lime Street up to um, Hope Street. And it was designed as a school to um, educate people who were blind or had got um, difficulties seeing to, to get a job so they could become self-sufficient. So the, the um, carvings on the wall of basket weaving, of bell tuning, of brush making, of things that people were taught to do so that they could become self-sufficient. Now, this is 200 years ago. And this is what Liverpool was doing. I think, oh, crikey. We've got so... We, we were doing that, too. we still don't do it now. We don't look after the, the less fortunate than ourselves well enough. We don't... We, <laughs> We haven't learned, but we were world-class as a city. And I think there's, there's still traces of that. And I think we should champion them at every opportunity. And bizarrely, that was formed by the son of a slave owner. And so there's big arguments about, was he a goodie, was he a baddie, the person that set up the Royal Institute for the Blind. I think, well, he certainly did one very good thing um, and was trying desperately to do something good. And it's a, it's a fascinating, it's just a fascinating city. Um, it just doesn't have enough business. I sat on the board of the LEP for tourism 10 or 12 years ago. The discussion then was our leisure business is great, but we haven't got enough. We haven't got enough, enough corporate, corporate We business. haven't got enough corporate. You know, yeah. the Bank of New York's gone to Manchester. Well, really? What's, hello? <laughs> we were your friends, not Manchester. We were, the, we were your trading partners in Liverpool. But the airport went to Manchester because... Interesting, Liverpool even then was a bit arrogant and thought, well, who's going to fly? Everyone's just going to go on nice boats. No one's going to want to fly. Well, actually, no, they do. And I think <laughs> the ability to change quickly, you know, the city's got a huge trading history. We're good at trade, but we've sort of lost our way commercially. And I think on a broader sense, I think that the biggest problem is as a that the media of the country treats um, corporations and profit as bad. Those words are not positive words. And I think, well, the only reason we've got any schools and any hospitals is because someone somewhere has made a profit and given it to the government. And that's a fantastic thing that should be championed. And we're starting to, I think little bits of the media are starting to talk about that. And, you know, I'm immensely proud of the amount of tax we pay. It's just ridiculous attack. We collect £2 million a year in VAT in the hotel and give it to the government. And our customers don't know that that's what happens. They just think I'm charging 20 quid more than I should on every 100 quid. Well, that's, and VAT in hospitality is wrong. It's the reason we're not very competitive with Europe is because most of Europe, um, hospitality VAT varies from very, very low single digit figures to sort of 12-ish percent. And that's why our food and drink is expensive. It's why our hotels are expensive. And, and it's a very simple solution for the government and there's been people shouting about it for a long time it's i think it's but that profit is so important for paying tax i personally don't believe that in a minority i don't think you should tax corporations because i don't think generally corporations are bad it's it's some of the idiot people that work in corporations that are bad you know it's not people going off and spending ridiculous amounts of money on ferraris or yachts i think well yeah, tax hell out of them because they've got more money than they need. That's who we should tax. Taxing the corporation, well, there's not a lot of point really because the corporation can only give the money. 
you don't really want to get me on how much chief execs are paid because <laughs> there's far too many people paid far too much money for doing far too little. Um, and I think that's where the problem in our society lies. I don't, I don't think we've crushed enough. That differential between the lowest paid and the highest paid is actually a really important metric. Mm. We don't, bizarrely, a Tory government has just put up minimum wage again by a huge amount, which most most people I talk to are saying it's going to be really hard. Mm. And no one's saying it's wrong, you know, but it's really, really difficult because it has such a big impact on differentials. Mm. Because the inevitable consequence is the people who are then in the middle expect a 10% yeah. increase. Blah, 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 blah. And so we're already talking to some of our members who are saying, we're going to have to make redundancies yeah. next year. And then that starts to impact on but how they feel they're being perceived in terms of the marketing spend and, and all that other, I mean, the huge knock-on effect. The politicians often don't take account of when they're making these it's, it's a very They're very hard decisions. And I think what's, what's bizarre, and I think what was bizarre in COVID, to be fair, um, the government protected people who were working in a way that in 2008, bizarrely, the Labour government protected the banks. And it and it's so upside down. I think. Oh, hold on a sec. <laughs> that you're not you. And it's the same with the minimum wage. I think. Well, that's not your job. That you can't be doing that because you're the Tories. And that's get out. And I, but I think, as you say, it's hugely complex. And the the impact it has, and understanding the impact, as Liz Truss showed. Was she right? Was she wrong? Well, we've more or less drifted to what she said anyway. But we've done it in a different way. And those big macroeconomic shifts have huge impacts on working people and and, and i think and businesses and, and, yeah. the, and well and then they, those two things are the same you know you, and, and i think that's one of the crucial things people who work and i think compared to when i grew up and you know during the minor strike there was very much there was an us and them and i've one of the things that i'm very keen to do and it, and it becomes increasingly difficult is that i think it has to be a team and any team is as strong as its weakest link. And its weakest link is often the most lowly paid by definition, because people who are supposed to be really good should be at the top. It's not always the case. Clearly it's, it's not always the case, but, and I think, you know, I played rugby at a decent level. And I think learning that a team is based on all sorts of weird, different shapes and sizes and all sorts of different abilities. And you're as strong as the weakest link. And we have to just, I think, I think society is better than it was. I think it's less us and them. I think the us and them culture is so damaging. And, and we see it in arguments over the Middle East, us and them. I think, well, there isn't an us and them. We see it in Ukraine. There isn't an us and them. There's just people living there, trying to live their lives. And actually, most of them don't care. Most of them don't care who's in charge. They just want to live their lives. They want their lives to be better for their children. They want to have food. They want to have shelter, those basic needs. And the, the, tra the traumas that people go through are just shocking. And, and I think a lot of it is created by people trying to identify baddies when there aren't really baddies there. Well, there are baddies, but yeah, people do horrible things. And, yeah. But the important thing is to try and not do them. You know, that, that fight for peace is, and fighting for peace in itself is quite different. How do you fight for peace? Because you've got to fight some baddies and then <laughs> yeah. oh, no, that's all gone wrong. And it's the whole, the whole world is like that. And I think one of the reasons that my development company has been so successful is Alan and I are chalk and cheese. We, 
if I say green, he'll say blue. If I say 28, he'll say 22. And, and I think there's a German expression for four eyes looking at any problem. If you have, and it's a curious thing about leadership because we all want leaders. And yet, as we can see by looking around the world, most leaders are a bit rubbish. It doesn't matter which one you pick, and I could lay loads of them. I'm not going to do it now, but the list is huge. And you think, oh, really? And, you know, David Cameron, clown, took us out of Europe. But did he intend to? No, but he was really Trump. It doesn't matter who you look at. You can look anyway. You can look at our leadership of the. You can look at our leadership all over the place. And it's just, it's, it, you sh we should always fight that us and them. We should always try and find consensus. It's about consensus because everyone agrees. The market, and bizarrely, the market does. The market says Pizza Express is a good company. Well, I fell out big time Pizza Express during COVID because they behaved appallingly. And, and I think it was interesting that the only people, I won't tell the full story, it's not quite right, but the only people, two, two of the three people I can mention, I think, one's an insurance company, not named, behaved badly in COVID, said, you're not covered. I said, I've got um, business interruption cover. I've been paying 30,000, £40,000 a year for this. Yeah, you're not covered. It's not on the list. Well, that's because it hadn't, it hadn't been discovered. No one knew COVID-19. In 2018, there wasn't a COVID-19. So the fact you've got cholera, the plague, you've got every, <laughs> every tuberculosis, every possible catastrophic disease you can think of is on the list that's covered. You can't say you're not covering the other candidates on the list. I think, what well, they so that becomes an argument. Pizza Express behaved badly. They said, We're not paying you any rent. I said, Well, hold on a second, have a chat. So I'd got a number of other food and beverage um, tenants, all who came and spoke to me, all who I did a deal with, some big, some small. They said, Yeah, of course I want you there as a tenant when it's finished. I know you haven't got any money coming in, so you don't have to pay any rent. That's, it's sort of self evident. But Pizza Express behaved very differently. I think it's a different company now. I think it's, it went through a huge change. Um, but again, I got onto my Yorkshire Fairness high horse because they decided, like lots of large corporates did, they run a CVA, they kept kept their good customers, so Covent Garden, Liverpool One, down at the waterfront, we'll keep all of those, we'll pay you in full through COVID. Little tiny ones over on the Wirral up in Southport, yeah, you're a Category 4, you're not going to get paid anything. I was lucky as a category C, it was, it was graded by letters, and which sort of said, yeah, we want to keep this restaurant, but we're only going to pay you a third of the rent. And we're only going to pay it for about three years after COVID had finished, ill-defined. And I said, oh, I don't think so. And I remember going in during Eat Out to Health Out, again, controversial, but they were trading their socks off and not paying any rent, not paying any rent. I said, well, you couldn't kick anyone out for not paying rent, but they... We sort of, as, as COVID eased, they, 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 had, they ran a CVA, which is an insolvency event. I issued notice you're in breach of contract because it's an insolvency event. You can't. That's, that's an actual breach. They then occupied the building. I didn't know that's what you did. Apparently, large corporates, when they, when they break their contract, they put security on. I said, yeah, but your security is costing the same as paying rent. If you pay, you're paying £15 an hour from about 11 a.m. to about 11, from about 11 p.m. to 11 a.m., that's about the same as your rent. Why don't you just pay your rent? No, we can't pay your rent. You're a category C, we're not paying your rent. So we had an argument and 
eventually we repossessed our own property, which was bizarre. Breaking into your own property was odd. I'm doing it at the police. So yeah, we're breaking in. We're doing this legally. Here's the notice. Putting it on the wall. You can't do it when anyone's there. And so we did. My <laughs> wife was beside herself. Tony, who's my lawyer, was there. Both sort of trying to be very, We can't break in. Yes, we can. So we're going to do. We're going to break it and take it back. They came to the table many bits of negotiation later offering to pay the same rent on a license which gave them virtually no rights but as they said to me too much water had gone under the bridge and I couldn't I couldn't really do the deal because I thought you treated so many other people so badly and I'm I was lucky enough I could take it on we've got a 1931 pizza restaurant now which is great it helps us in terms of breakfast in the hotel. We're a much bigger hotel, so it helped us anyway. Also, having a big tenant in the middle of your business wasn't ideal. So mm-hmm. it, it helped in a number of other ways, but they behaved poorly, really, really poorly. And it wasn't – I would have been okay. I mean, ultimately, I negotiated back to where I was, but they'd shut down so many little businesses because they could, and I thought that's not, that's not fair. And I tried to tell the story in the press, but – I wasn't really interested in that story. I thought it was quite a good story. I thought, and I thought, and as I say, Pizza Express is an amazing business. You know, I remember in London when I was teaching down there, it was, it was quite cool. Yeah, yeah. Before we, we close the conversation and we've covered, as I expected, a whole range of subjects, um, your passion, as I said, in terms of business seems to me to be hospitality. Yeah, you know, when you talk about the hotel, it comes across. That yeah, I really love this place, and you've described it as your baby. It is my baby. It's interesting that because it's, I'm not. You wouldn't put me front of house. You really wouldn't. In fact, I've famously told some customers, "No, you're going to have to leave." And I, 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 I can't because I. And I and watching people who are very good at dealing with people who are very, behaving very badly is an absolute joy. So when someone is being just obnoxious and you see a member of staff smiling and saying, yes, I'm terribly sorry, sir, but this is what we need to do. And taking the wind out of some irate sails that are just bonkers is a real joy to watch. Unfortunately, as you probably know, I would tend to... <laughs> just kick them out. I would tend to rise to the occasion and... and I, you know, I would famously have a fight. I was thrown out of the Philharmonic Hall many years ago for saying to some of the security guards, what are you going to do, call the police? And then I was standing there with my wife at a very posh do that she'd been invited by the hosts of the whole event who'd sponsored the event. I was standing there with my wife, that's why the police came in and said, <laughs> that's him. And I was escorted out. I said, what? Well, you can't be serious. So I can, I, I'm not, you wouldn't put me in charge of hospitality. I, I love great hospitality, which is just about people being friendly. We were 20 on Monday, and I was as badly dressed as anyone. I think I was in my tracksuit. And we had, whoever could come up, we had a cake and some champagne that said happy birthday. And there must have been, it was, we did it at a time when the restaurant was very quiet. And I went around and get, and I don't, don't often do this, gave the customers that were in a glass of champagne. You can imagine their surprise when some weird bloke dressed in, in a tracksuit <laughs> and I had one of my much more professional looking members of staff come with me and she looked great and it was okay to say, no, he, it is okay. It's not some weirdo saying here's some champagne because I, I'm not very good at that. But I, I think understanding it is what, you know, you, when you see good service and you, and there's all sorts of different places you learn from. You think, I'd, I'd like to do that. I'd like as well. And it's a relentless battle, you know, that it goes on every day. I could think of four or five examples that are current 
that are, we've got to improve that. That's just not, that's not Hope Street. That's not good enough. And, and it's that constant, keep on top of it, keep on top of it. Do you really want to say that? Is that nice? Is that how you'd like to be spoken to? Do we do that? Can we make this nicer? How do we make the welcome better? How, and it's a, it's a tough, tough job. And because it's hospitality, it's a fairly high turnover of staff. Ours is quite good, but it's tough. It's a tough world. It's a, it is an enjoyable world, but it's, it, it's funny what, what bit of my business someone said to me, yeah, you're known as Hope Street Hotel. And I thought, yeah, but my proper business is the one that's five times bigger, well, it's 10 <laughs> times bigger than Hope Street. Um, but I, development itself is, you'd never want to say you're a developer because generally they're crooks. Again, I don't want to upset some developers out there that aren't crooks, but there's an awful lot of crooks in that world. And it's widely known. It's on every drama, TV, crime drama. There's nearly always a criminal who's involved in development. <laughs> and so would you ever say you're a developer? Not really. No, you don't really want to be associated with that world. But that I think making the place better is what you do. Everywhere you go, you try and make it better. That's your passion. All you can do is make it better. You can do your little bit. And you can only control what you can control. I mean, I'm lucky I can now control quite a bit. But you can just make it better for... Everybody involved, customers, staff, and and also the government that takes all the money off you because you're doing all the hard work. So thanks for that. Just here we've done all this. Why don't you have it? Because that <laughs> seems to be how it works. <laughs> oh, my final rant. My final rant would be one of the things that I said about being on a um, tourism board ages ago. We're now part of the bid, and um, the one thing I wanted to try and do, and I think Liverpool would be a great place to do it, is to try and take the large corporate known as of the online travel agents, so booking.com being the biggest player. I think it takes about 15 million pounds a year out of the Liverpool economy. What does it give to the Liverpool economy? Well, it gives a very efficient booking engine. And again, 10 years ago, I said, we should be doing this. And booking.com was virtually nobody then. It was companies like Hotwire and lastminute.com. And I, th I think it's interesting. I was watching a taxi driver in London an interview yesterday about Uber. And there's, the, there's these businesses which are just unbelievably successful. But we pay, I think we're now at about 15%. We have been as high as 18% of the total take from a customer. And it's a little bit, everyone gets upset with estate agents who take 1% or 2%. Think, well, what are you doing? Why do you get 1% or 2% of the value of my house? You've just put a picture in your window. Well, we don't even have a window. They've just got an incredibly sophisticated system which they've developed. And it's a super, I mean, amazing business but i think that 15 million pounds should stay in the city i don't think it needs to go out. anyone who's looking for a hotel in liverpool doesn't think and booking.com doesn't help them because booking.com doesn't care whether you go to liverpool or newcastle it doesn't make any difference to them it's just a sale and i think we should and i think we're an independent enough city to say okay let's just all together and it wouldn't matter if 20 percent didn't do it but if we could all get together and there's lots of general managers that might join in, I think there would be some pressure from some. But Premier Inn Manager, they don't, they're not on Booking.com. There's a number of independents not on Booking.com. and I, I think taking that, it means that we could offer, we could employ. I think Booking.com is equivalent to about six members of staff for me. And I think, oh, that's a ridiculous amount of, we could do that. And if you take that from every hotel, you think, okay, can we compete? We should be able to. Are we bolshy enough in the city to do it? Well, we should be able to be. We should be able to say, actually, we don't need you anymore. Thanks. You're great. 
learn how to do it, but we don't need you. And I, that independence is what I'd like. I, I'd, I'd always like to challenge stuff. And as I'm trying to retire, I don't think taking on booking.com should quite be my <laughs> ambition, but that's sort of, sort of what I'd like to do. But as you say, Liverpool would be a good place to start. It'd be a great place to start. Then you go up to Newcastle, Newcastle could follow. Newcastle might want to compete with us. And there's loads of cities that you think, and we're too small for booking.com to notice. You know, you think, well, okay, Liverpool does it. Their algorithms wouldn't pick it up immediately. They'd pick it up within a day or so. But it might be too, if we'd got our act together, and there's a lot of money involved, you know, 15 million quid, you can do an awful lot of control of that market. And I think it'd be a great thing to try. And I think it'd be great for Liverpool to say, actually, we're independent. We support our independence in many ways more than we support our change. You clearly need the big chains to help. You know, your Radisson's, your Marriott's, your Hilton's, the, the, the big players. Um, and it would be great. It would be a great thing to challenge. I'd love to challenge Brooklyn. I don't think I'm going to do it. I'm trying to retire and I'm failing miserably. Um, but today has been quite a good chat. It's not been proper work. So it's, been it's, great. it's nearly like, it's nearly like yeah, retiring. It's just chatting in the pub. And clearly I talk too much and hopefully I've not said anything that I shouldn't really have said. I'm sure I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure I normally manage to say something. <laughs> but I think I've felt myself pulling myself back a few times, you know, don't don't mention that name. Um, so No, you've done very well. You've been very controlled. I've, I try quite hard because I can see this microphone here and I know the damage that can be done by just taking one little sentence and saying, Dave said, so yeah, no, that's not what I meant. <laughs> what I meant was the two hours of garbling that I did before. Um, yeah, so. But I think the great thing about a podcast is that you can put things into context. You can, yeah. You don't get just cut into sound bites, which I know the press have done to you in the past. And I'm sure listeners will thoroughly enjoy what has been a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating conversation with uh, a tip as to how Liverpool perhaps can be, uh, can take the lead on a bit of innovation on that booking site because our visitor economy is such an important It's crucial. It employs so our, many people yeah, in, the city in this now. place. And it's something we are very, very good at. We, the reason I'm in Liverpool is because the first day I arrived, people were hospitable. That's why I'm here. That's why I stayed. And it's a great city. And my kids are, kids are proper scouts. They're brought up right in the central Liverpool. You know, one was played Liverpool for 10 years at the, uh, for fo at football. The other one set up 92 degrees. I'm immensely proud of my children who are, they're proper scouts. And sometimes people quite rightly say to me, you're not even a proper scouser. Well, no, of course I'm not. I'm from Yorkshire, but I live here now and I've been here since 1981. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very hospitable city. Um, and, and yeah, that would be a great place to challenge the, the world of hospitality, which is sometimes a bit bonkers and it sometimes gets a bit lost in what's good and what's bad. But I am trying to retire, so I'm... I might leave that to people who are better and smarter than me to, to try and take on, <laughs> take on those big, big, big players who are bigger than countries in their turnover. Mm. So, um, well, what's this space? We'll see if Dave retires or whether he takes on Buckner's phone. But Dave Brewitt, thanks very much for coming into the Dale Sound. Great. Sorry to, to garble on so much. I've it's really been really it. interesting, and, um, honestly. I've thank really you. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks, Dave. Thank you very much. Jeez, that was Dave Brewitt, our latest guest in our Leaders series in the downtown den. And uh, if you want to go onto our Spotify account, you'll see some other people from the hospitality sector interviewed <laughs> alongside some, some professional authority <laughs> 
executives. Uh, I'm not sure whether we've got any gangster developers. Don't think we have. Excellent. Uh, but go and have a look and uh, some great interviews there. But thanks once again to Dave Brewer for coming in. Celebrating 20 years of Hope Street Hotel. And I'll just say this to listeners, particularly those who are not from Liverpool. If you are coming to this fabulous city and you want a extra special experience, please go and visit the hotel. If you don't stay there, um, at least go to London Carriage Works, the restaurant. But if you get a chance, book a room because it is absolutely magnificent. Anyway, that's it from me, Frank McKenna, Group Churn Chief Exec of Downtown and Business. Join us next time when we'll have another leader in the downtown den. <laughs>